Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I'm your host, Danny. Uh, you guys probably already know that by now, and you're probably tired of hearing my voice, which is why I got Dr. Paul Miles with us again. If you remember him, I had him on the channel to be interviewed as far as Young Earth creationism and different aspects as far as that is concerned. And so he was uh, very well-spoken. He's a great guy, and he's a host of the Thursday show. And so I'll let him talk a little bit about that here in a little while. And today I've asked him to come on because... Uh, he's been talking a lot about archaeology, and so archaeology, if you know anything about me, is something that's near and dear to my heart. I think archaeology uh, definitely uh, reveals a lot of aspects about the historical events of the Bible, and I wanted to have uh, Dr. Paul Miles on to go ahead and talk a little bit about that, his studies, his research, and what it points to as far as historical narratives of the Bible are concerned. And so without further ado, uh, Paul, just thank you for being with us. Again, tell the people a little bit about yourself, Thursday show, anything else before we actually dive in. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here again. So uh, my wife and I live in Kiev, Ukraine. We're currently displaced to Oklahoma due to the uh, the situation out there. We started Grace Abroad Ministries in 2016 to do translation, teaching, and outreach. Uh, we saw a real need for theologically sound materials in uh, Russian and Ukrainian from the uh, faith alone and Christ alone and dispensationalist conservative perspectives. So we started a ministry around that, and uh, it's grown to go beyond translation into teaching and outreach. Uh, so a lot of our work is done in foreign languages, and then... Uh, we ended up uh, displaced here to America for a bit, and uh, we got to thinking we should probably do something in English. So that's where the uh, the Thursday show comes in. We've uh, I started doing a weekly uh, podcast. Is that the right word or a, a video? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're going through. That's what Genesis, I use. Yeah. So. Okay, so uh, you can find Thursday show on uh, YouTube, or go to the Grace Abroad Ministries site on. Um, Facebook and we put them out there as well. So and do you do live stuff? Um certainly don't do dead stuff. <laughs> I used to live stream the uh the Thursday show, but the uh the quality was always suffering as a result. So I started yeah. recording them and putting them online. We also started the International Society for Biblical Hermeneutics. Mm, to that's a mouthful. Promote, uh, it is. It's uh it's a little theological society to uh, develop and promote dispensationalism globally, especially starting in Europe. So we do webinars with them. We've got one coming up on March 11th, and we'll typically live stream those to uh, the ISBH presentations page. And we also record them to kind of edit and uh, make them uh, higher quality for, for posting online later. That's like, you know, and being privileged to be involved in the ISBH webinars and listening, you have some great speakers, great presenters, and really digging into scripture. And and I think the last time was talking about 2 Timothy 1, I believe it was, and what does it mean that if we remain faithless, he remains faithful for a God can't deny himself. And then you had, uh, that was Dr. Stephen Cook, and then you had Dane Rogers, which very much impressed me as far as how much well-spoken he is in scripture and how young he is. And uh, talking about different parables, how to understand parables, and the parable of the 10 virgins as well. And so, fascinating stuff out there and so we're gonna have links in the descriptions below as far as any of these ministries that you'd be interested with dr paul miles on so definitely go check them out and then be in prayer for him and his family out there in oklahoma like i said being displaced with situation going on with ukraine 
And uh, definitely uh, with light of recent events as well, be in prayer for Turkey and Syria with the earthquakes. And I think the largest was like a 7.5 magnitude. And now they're getting just aftershock after aftershock. And so uh, just be in prayer for the people over there as well. And so with that being the case, uh, like I said, what we want to talk about today is archaeology and what's in the dirt and what why do we care about what's in the dirt and what is the things in the dirt have to do with the Bible? And so but before we get into that, because within archaeology, there's a lot of measuring that takes place. Whenever you go to an archaeological or excavation site, you see it sort of gridded out and, and patterned off and marked off. And then when they find artifacts, they're doing measurements and they're trying to say, see how big something is, how deep it is, whatever the case is. And that leads me to like, what, what's your problem with the metric system? What's wrong with the metric yes. system, Paul? I am an outspoken critic of the metric system. It's the wrong way to live. And, and most of the world has been deceived into this this evil, corrupt way of counting by tens. It's it's not how it's supposed to be. It's wrong. Uh, what is the metric system and what's so wrong? About, is that like the common core of measurements? It uh, it, it has become the common core. I, I want to point out that it is new. It is it is not the way of antiquity. <laughs> you, you stick a shovel in the dirt and you dig down and you start finding stuff. Uh, I mean, goodness, the, the Babylonians, they didn't even use a, a base 10 numbering system. Hmm. They had a base 60, right? Hmm. So uh, it's also ableism, right, for, for the uh, the woke out in the audience. What do you mean have, by that, uh, ableism? Ableism is uh, favoring those who are not disabled. I have uh, loved ones mm -hmm. who have lost digits in their life. You know, I've mm -hmm. got an uncle with uh, nine and a third fingers because he lost mm -hmm. the, the top two digits. Yeah. Uh, so shouldn't we have a, a base nine and a third uh, counting system instead? <laughs> right. And so as opposed to having like, say, four inch, four and one eighth of an inch, they just do there four inches. <laughs> it's, I can understand that because if you're dealing with architecture and you're trying to build something or construct something and it has to be exact measurements, you know, if you have something at four and a half and then you want to round up the other one to five or something, you know, you're going to throw your measurements off and you're going to get to the Leaning Tower of Pisa type deal. Although I know that's a, more of a go. foundational thing than uh, a metric. I don't, I don't know. Maybe they used a metric system for the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Is that the case? Nah, it's too old. <laughs> too old. That was, uh, that's right. So a, you said uh, it, it wasn't as far as an antiquity is concerned. Does that mean we, we still need to use like cubits from like what? My I, elbow I, to my fingertip? You know, what I'm about in favor of that. Are you? I so am? Your, yes. your cubit would be longer than my cubit, right? Because you're, you're, I look up to you because you're taller than me. So would your cubit be longer? It would, uh, unless you have a standard cubit, which, uh, which we could do too. So is that 18? Is that 20? How many inches is a standard? Uh, I, I think they typically do like 18 for the uh, the standard. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I just had to ask you because I see a lot of uh, hate towards the metrics. I'm not a metric oh, yeah. guy, you know, so I, I like the standard measurements, uh, the good old American, you know, measurements as well. Uh, I don't like trying to figure out on a tape measure. One, two, three, how many little lines there are and then trying to figure out is that three eighths or what? You know, that's confusing to me. I am not that smart, but uh. So that's what I like about the tens, but I can see your point, but I'm not a metric guy. In all seriousness, no, though, in all seriousness, though, uh, there's a lot of negativity out there about a lot of important stuff. So I, I try to direct a lot of hate toward 
the metric system because it's not something that people get really upset about. So it's something that we can argue about. And then at the end of the day, we're still friends, even if you're a, a complete uh, meter zombie. And uh, I have arguments with people that uh, we wouldn't be able to necessarily have a, a civil argument about other stuff that we disagree with. So, yeah, no, that's true. I, yeah, I appreciate that. that redirection aspect, you know? Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, something that causes quite a bit of discussion is really the first honest question or first true question I have for you regarding archaeology. Uh, there are some people within the philosophical realm that believe that nothing truly can be proven that is historical. Take, for instance, the the shot heard around the world with the Boston Massacre. Depending on who you talk to, some people will say that the British fired the first shot. Some people will say that the Americans fired the first shot. And so there's a lot of writings as far as that's concerned. So in essence, unless you live during that time period, you can't prove per se who fired that first shot. And so there's a lot of discussion within philosophy on if anything really can be proven or if things can merely just be supported or corroborated with what we see now of things that happened in the past. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think anything can truly be proven uh, that happened before our births or can it just merely be supported and corroborated? Well, uh, how far do they want to push that, right? Uh, if birth is the uh, is the standard, mm -hmm. then are they saying that we cannot prove to anyone who was born uh, in the past year that Donald Trump was president? Okay. Right? right? I saw him, right? You saw him. All of us who were alive then recognized the fact. Mm -hmm. uh, are, we, are we saying that... We can have that proven to us, but a child who is an infant now, but will grow up eventually, mm -hmm. can't have that proven to him, right? Uh, if we can prove Donald Trump to him, then how certain can we be then that uh, we'll go back a couple of generations to uh, George Washington, right? Mm. Uh, you're, you're, you're an absolute fool if you deny that George Washington was president, right? All right. So, um. It's not even controversial, right, that George Washington was president. Right. So how then we deal with uh, controversies, right? Uh, the shot heard around the world, right? Uh, what would be the – that's not a, a particular topic that I've looked into. I, I'd be right. interested now. I'm kind of curious. But <laughs> do we have any uh, authoritative documents to support that, right? When we get to the discussion of the Bible – um, our claim is that the Bible is the authoritative document. Mm -hmm. And what what keeps occurring is people will deny that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, and then they will try to support that claim mm -hmm. through uh, bogus arguments from silence frequently. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. And we can look at some of those in a bit. Someone will say, this particular person in the Bible did not exist. Therefore, we know that the Bible is uh, is errant here. Mm -hmm. And how do we know that the person doesn't exist? Well, because he doesn't mm -hmm. exist in the archaeological record. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we find him in the archaeological record. What has this entire exercise proven? Mm -hmm. Has it proven uh, the entirety of the, the Bible? No, it's proven that one particular guy. Mm -hmm. Or moreover, I, I might say it might be more accurate to say it has disproven 
a bogus attack on the Bible, mm. right? Um, bogus attacks are, are going to be nonstop, right? Mm. Uh, my argument would be if the Bible says that it happens, it's already, then it, and then it's true. Um, the question is, what is our, our, our starting point, right? Uh, for some reason, if Herodotus says that someone existed, we automatically believe Herodotus, mm. by the way, I think we have good reason to. <laughs> yeah. So why All is right. it then that we, we are on this quest? I say we, they are on mm -hmm. this quest right, yeah, to try yeah. to disprove individual figures from the Bible. Um, the arguments are usually very, 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 very weak. So. Not, you know, it's interesting because like how you drew out a presuppositional approach to apologetics is you're yeah. starting with this. And if anything, it's not necessarily the artifacts that prove this, but this proves the artifacts, if you will. Where's your starting point? And if if God is special revelation written through scripture and then this is historically accurate and this is our starting point everything that we find in the dirt should align with what we read yep. in scripture and i like what you drew out about the argument from silence because uh one of the things when i've studied archaeology and i don't know if you're going to talk about this later so i don't want to talk a lot about it but the pontius pilate stone and that a lot mm -hmm. of people disbelieve that pontius pilate was an actual person in history until they found some uh artifacts that had his name inscribed on it in the location he was said to be at. And so definitely it pointed to the fact that, yep, the Bible obviously got it right because the Bible is the word yeah. of God. All right. So now that we're talking about that and we're really getting into this topic of archaeology, not archaeopteryx, which archaeopteryx took me a long time to figure out how to say that word and I can't spell it, but we're not talking about the archaeopteryx, but we're talking about archaeology. And so regarding archaeology, what role, what is archaeology and what role does it play within society today? What are your thoughts? Not That's a good question. <laughs> so, uh, so archaeology is basically the study of the past, uh, uh, typically through using objects that are found from antiquity. Mm -hmm. So taking the things that people back then had and studying them to better understand their context. Uh, their way of life and their their history, if you will. Uh, it has a, a significant role, really, in okay. uh, in life today. Uh, we are all somehow or another uh, connected to the past, right? Uh, what we are living today is somehow contributed to by uh, what has happened before. Uh, hmm. Regardless of your worldview, everybody will agree with that. Yeah. Um, from the biblical worldview. Archaeology is helpful for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, there's a uh, there's an apologetics aspect which we've touched on already. Uh, you mentioned uh, presuppositional mm. apologetics, which is basically the idea that we should take a worldview as an entire unit mm -hmm. and analyze it. Right. So coming from the biblical worldview, we're saying that the Bible is our starting point. Mm -hmm. What would the world look like if we're right? And the answer is the world would look exactly like <laughs> the world that we're living in, right? Yeah. And archaeology uh, 
contributes to that apologetically because some people are trying to rearrange history and say, well, there is no God, for example. So people just kind of uh, evolved into um, what we have today. And then we have some serious archaeological conflicts with that. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, the pyramids, right? Yeah. So you're telling me that people were uh, these hominids that just kind of uh, lived out there and finally learned how to babble and talk. And then, boom, all of a sudden they make giant pyramids that we don't have the technology to create today. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, not much of an intermediate space in between. Right. Mm-hmm. So we can use apologetics to analyze alternative worldviews and see, okay, there's problems with that. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, people are trying to attack our biblical worldview, and we can use archaeology to um, show that those uh, arguments are are full of shortcomings. So that's right. sort of the apologetics aspect. There's also a hermeneutics aspect that we okay. can apply as well. Uh, so, for example, uh, lately I've been doing some work in Ezra, and this morning mm-hmm. I was in Ezra 4, which mm-hmm. has a uh, letter that... Rehum, the chancellor, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote to mm-hmm. Artaxerxes the king. Then Artaxerxes the king writes back a letter to them. Right. Okay. Um, I have the biblical text, uh, but the biblical text doesn't really define what a chancellor or a scribe is. Mm. Uh, the biblical text has several Aramaic letters that go between these parties, Um but I, I can't really tell what the norm is for uh, communicating in letters in Aramaic hmm. um, for the time. Uh, however, through archaeology, we're able to go to the uh, Elephantine papyri, uh, which is a, a whole whole bunch of um, Aramaic letters that were written mm-hmm. by Jews amongst Jews to pagans in ancient Egypt around mm-hmm. the same time as Artaxerxes. And we can piece together through that and we can understand, oh, okay, so here is what the role of a chancellor is. Here is what the role Mm -hmm. of a scribe was. So whenever it talks about these two guys and their positions, we can have a better understanding of what they were up to. Uh, We can look at the grammar and the conventions within other Aramaic letters Mm -hmm. and see, okay, so this is what an Aramaic letter looks like. Uh, This particular letter does this one a little bit differently here. Mm -hmm. So is it... Was Artaxerxes trying to do something special with his letter whenever he responded? And so you can you can piece together stuff like that. It, truth be told, it doesn't have a whole lot of impact on the final conclusion mm-hmm. of what's being said. Right, that the Bible is sufficient in and of itself, mm-hmm. but it does give you. Uh, it helps the the Bible come to life, if you will. You can you can have a more full understanding of what was life like back then whenever you yeah. read the text. So oh, fascinating. You know, I love that aspect as far as hermeneutics and, and interpretation is concerned as well. And so one thing that's always plagued a lot of people, I guess you could say, uh, that aren't as knowledgeable within archaeology and excavation and things like that is when they dig up artifacts in the ground or artifact, just anything that they dig up from antiquity, when they dig up these artifacts, it's not like they come with a made in China stamp, you know, and so they don't come with date stamps. So how are we able to actually figure out what time period uh, these artifacts are coming from if they're in the dirt? That's a good question. Uh, I've got a couple of pictures of some mm-hmm. artifacts that uh, 
might be interesting to look at for uh, comparative reasons. Let's see if I can pull it up. All right. Are you able to see this pretty well? I've seen that you have started screen sharing, waiting on it. To... Oh, there we go. Babylonian there we go. Chronicle. All right. Uh, laser pointer. Good Let's thing my cat's you. not there here. My cat would chase that all over the screen. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cool thing. Uh, I, I keep learning new stuff on PowerPoint. Like you can have a little red dot that goes. I've around. never That's noticed a... that. Oh yes, you got to go down to the bottom left corner. It's a uh, it's it's a doozy. Are you an Apple or a Windows guy? PC. Windows. Oh, good, because Apple is a communist system that has the... They're opening <laughs> out front with uh, them being, uh, if you will, evil because they have the fallen fruit as they're low. They're very, very open and outspoken with that. And so I, I'm surprised a lot of... I'm surprised a lot of Christians use Apple, but I'm glad to hear... Do you know the history of the logo? Of the um, forbidden fruit on the Apple computer? Yes. I don't. According to legend, anyway, <laughs> uh, Steve Jobs was at the very beginning of the founding of the company. He was meeting yeah. with everybody, and uh, they were trying to come up with a name. And he had an apple on the desk, and he said, "Look, guys, if you don't come up with a, a title, a name for this company by tomorrow, I'm calling it Apple." Oh, really? And, <laughs> like left, and they didn't come up with one. Says, "Okay, I guess we're calling it Apple then." Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's the that's where the apple came from, that according makes... to legend. I wasn't alive then, so uh, I can't know it for sure, right? <laughs> Whatever. We'll check out Snopes.com to see if it's legit, right? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe I was Wrong. alive. I don't know when the company was founded, so uh, I would not I probably encourage was people. Alive, so I guess I can be proved. <laughs> I would not encourage people to use Snopes as a validity check fact checker. But anyway, not after that's... the not after the blowout they had with uh, Babylon <laughs> B. Oh my god! Okay, yeah. Anyway, Babylon B, go support them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what are we looking at here? All right, so this is a Babylonian chronicle. Mm. Um, it was purchased in 1896 from a uh, antiquities dealer, which is uh a whole entire topic uh, that uh, archaeologists have a, have a lot to say about. Mm. Um, how exactly is it that we end up with objects like this? Often they end up on the antiquities market, and often there's a lot of fraudulent stuff that works its way in. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of reason to say that this is not fraudulent. but uh, okay. So this one didn't actually come out of the dirt, per se. It came out of uh, some uh, bazaar somewhere, probably, right? <laughs> And uh, it's written in Akkadian, and they uh, transliterated and translated it. And come to find out, this is a Babylonian chronicle. It records several uh, feats of King Nebuchadnezzar. Mm -hmm. There's not actually a date written on the uh, the tablet, um, as for like when the tablet was written, but mm -hmm. the tablet itself contains several dates. So regardless of when it was written, I think we can probably trust that it's a rather uh, faithful witness to what it is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually wanted written. There's probably mm -hmm. a lot of propaganda integrated on there. Um, but as we read along, we come across this line right here. Uh, in the seventh year, in the month of Kislev, the king of Akkad uh, mustered his army and marched to Hattu. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He encamped against the city of Judah, 
which of course is Jerusalem. And on the second day of the month, Hadar, he captured the city and seized its king. Then um, a king of his own choice, he appointed in the city and taking the vast tribute, he brought it to Babylon. Mm. Okay, so this is a uh, historical record of what we see in 2 Kings 24, 10 to 11, when King Nebuchadnezzar attacked uh, Jerusalem and uh, took him out, right? The king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign, speaking of Jerusalem and the king. So so often we do indeed actually have um, dates on artifacts. Oh, by the way, you mm-hmm. might notice it says the seventh year in the Babylonian tablet, but the mm-hmm. eighth year in the Hebrew. That's not because they disagree. It's mm-hmm. because in the Babylonian calendar, they wouldn't count the first year of the reign as year one. Mm-hmm. That's year zero, right? Mm-hmm. And then year one starts after that, and then year two all the way around. Right. In the Hebrew, that first year, year zero, counts as the first year. So you're always going to have one year difference in the two. Okay, okay, makes sense. So often you can get a tablet like that that actually does give a date for a an occurrence in the past. Sometimes you can get another uh, item like this. Mm. So this is the Merneptah steel. It is... Uh, particularly famous because it mentions Israel uh, right around here somewhere. Or in uh, Egyptian, it's user er. Oh. Uh, they, they don't have the uh, letter L in Egyptian. And that's the proper this. pronunciation, I assume, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say Ooh. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm over here reading it in, uh, <laughs> in Russian. The Y is an U in uh, Hebrew It's or uh, Egyptian. Yeah. So it's... Egyptian, Egyptian, I've never understood Egyptian alphabet or symbols or none of that. But you say it's, it's in there uh, It's based an interesting language. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, let's see, can we find it here in the uh, text? I oh, can I just see some flags and a bird and a guy squatting <laughs> down. <laughs> but a lot of people a lot smarter than me, uh, including uh, you and others have already been able to decipher that. So, <laughs> yeah, there it is. E, sir. And then E, er. And it's got this little stick and yes. the dudes. That means it's a nation. It's an enemy nation, if you will. It's oh, okay. That's often used to uh, denote Asiatics. Huh. Uh, okay. So, anyhow, that's neither here nor there. We're talking about dating. So right, it's got yeah. a particular conflict with Israel. And if you go to the very top line right uh-huh. here, uh, on the very top of this deal, it gives the date right here. So we're reading it right to left. And you can translate it into English as year five, third month of the summer, day three, uh, mm-hmm. And it gives under the magic forest, blah, 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 goes on bragging about how great it is and, and all that right. and all that. So, um, so actually often we do indeed have items which have a, uh, an actual date on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can also date items. So here's a chart that uh, I found in an article that uh, uh, Dr. Okay. Titus Kennedy wrote. He's a oh, archaeologist. Yeah. Yep. I like uh, Titus. 
Titus is a great guy. Uh, he comes out to uh, Kiev and teaches out there. So that's where and we He's met. got a show too out there, I believe as well. I forget what his TV show is called, but we watched it all. Oh yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm pretty yeah. sure. But anyways, so it's what's this card out there? All right. So um, often we don't have an actual date written on things, right? Those two items do have dates, but throughout time, different items have different styles that they, they go through. Right. Mm. And, Archaeologists have found all sorts of pots and all sorts of places and different lamps and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they can find these things located next to other objects, which are easier to date, uh, like stele with, with dates on them or uh, uh, mm -hmm. houses and stuff that they, they know where they're dated. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the history of archaeology, they've been able to group pottery and items based on style. Hmm. So if you find uh, one of these bad boys right here, you know that's going to be in the early Bronze Age. Okay. If it looks like something this, like this, this is uh, this is Byzantine, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're digging along and you find this lamp, you know, well, that was done after the biblical times. But okay. if you find this kind of lamp, you know, oh, okay, so that's, that might align with... Uh, uh, with the uh the historical United kingdom yeah. right yeah right okay so we can look at actually actual dates written on uh on items right. we can look at items and figure out the style that they're in and kind of get a good date based off of that mm -hmm. whenever you're digging along you you might notice that uh, archaeologists are always very careful about trying to dig away layers at a time. It takes a very long process of getting the dirt away, so you don't you don't want to just stick a backhoe in the ground and break through every single pot. True. Yeah. As they're digging along, um, well, let's talk about how these things came to be first, right? So first, you have a layer of soil, right? Mm -hmm. And then in the Iron Age, maybe someone dug a ditch and threw some garbage down in there. Uh, maybe someone built a little building and they they dug a hole and put a post down there to to build a foundation. Mm -hmm. And with time, dirt collects over the top of that and you get another layer. And then the Romans come along and they uh, put some garbage out there and then that gets covered over and then they build a wall. Before long, you get all these layers of dirt stacked up on top of each other. And within the layers, you have all sorts of different items from all sorts of different ages. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Typically, the further down you go, the older you get, the further up it is, the uh, the newer it is. Mm -hmm. Of course, sometimes you can have a, a pit or something so that you can have a medieval deposit that goes into a Roman road. So you'll have Roman, mm -hmm. medieval time, and Roman like that. So as they're digging along, they can look at a wall or some rubbish and say, okay, well, here is a fragment of a pot that we can identify that we can date based on its uh, appearance everything else that's in that level is probably going to be of that same time frame mm. um now a lot of a lot of uh presuppositions go into this there's a lot of assumptions right yeah right um especially the further and further back you go through antiquity mm -hmm. uh it's not easy to, to necessarily put a date on everything. Um, often a lot of this goes down to um, 
Bates on Steely, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when exactly was this particular dynasty of Egypt? Mm-hmm. Um, there have been some sort of fringe theories that have tried to drastically reconstruct Egyptian history mm-hmm. uh, or Greek history by trying to overlap times. Right. Uh, sometimes when you do that, you can see, okay, there's a weakness here because now we have um, Iron Age uh, mm-hmm. pottery in a dynasty which is supposedly bronze age so okay. why do we have all this iron age technology during the bronze age right uh, or vice versa right um so we, we can really put some very uh reliable dates on a lot of stuff uh all the way back to i think uh david once you mm-hmm. get back beyond David, things start to get uh, a little bit more controversial mm-hmm. and more and more and more controversial. By the time you get to the uh, the Exodus, mm-hmm. <laughs> it starts to get real controversial. A lot yeah. of people trying to define, okay, this is the Pharaoh of the Exodus. This is the Pharaoh of Joseph. Right. Um, I still haven't figured out which Pharaoh of uh, Joseph or the Exodus <laughs> I, I land on myself. Yeah. Uh, There's so many assumptions, so many steps that you have to go through to get there. If you make one misstep along the way, your end result is going to be off. And it'll be very difficult to figure out which misstep you made along the way, or if you even made a misstep. So, and I think with uh, that, like what you had pointed out is this has got to be the starting point. Yeah. You know, but some of the controversy comes in Genesis when it mentions uh, Ramses. You know, and then the discussion on whether Ramses was the Pharaoh or not. I know personally I've watched now you probably studied this a lot more than I have, but watching the documentary called The Patterns of the Exodus, that was very eye opening to me. And and really the questions from what he drew out are the wrong questions to be asked and looking at, okay, uh, shifting not the Bible timeline to see everything fit, but shifting the Egyptian timeline. Bingo. And then when you do that, everything lines up and so uh, it's just fascinating there are some uh questionable aspects about uh that approach as well um i imagine one uh, i have some uh friends that are uh very vehemently opposed to uh the the reconstruction that uh david roll has done one of their big arguments is that no christian uh egyptologist holds to that perspective, uh, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, but I look at some of the stuff that uh, my Christian Egyptologist friends are holding to, and I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, not saying you're necessarily wrong because of this, but I know a lot of non-Christians that would agree <laughs> with certain points along the way. Right. Uh, yeah. One big topic is the uh, the genealogies in Genesis. Right. I would tend to say that the... Uh, Masoretic text is faithful to the original that Moses wrote. Mm-hmm. However, the Greek Septuagint has some different numbers in there, which would give you an extra 500 years, I think, mm-hmm. after the uh, dispersion at Babel, uh, which would give a little bit more time for the Egyptian uh, pre-dynastic age. But even then, a lot of the secularists are trying to build a timeline that, which is based on evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, says that people would have lived in Egypt for uh, long before we believe the the flood occurred, right? Mm-hmm. 
and their archaeological evidence for that I, I think is frankly lacking right yeah <laughs> so no in the end like you said you know there's some artifacts that come sort of with the date stamp if you will as far as the reign of a king and, and stuff like that but then there's others that talks about okay pottery and, and the big deal about pottery is is like how clothing you know has different styles and different trends you know pottery there was an evolution once technology increases once uh, workmanship and craftsmanship increases once the care and concern increased and and as far as revealing royalty and, and royal pottery stuff like that so design and care so there's a lot that goes in, involved into it if you were to look at a car from look at the 1923 you know what is it model a ford or whatever mm -hmm. and then you look at a car today there's de we see a definite evolution of vehicles so i think that that plays a role as well uh following you you know on facebook and stuff like that seems like you, you were talking about ezra though ezra i believe what no ezra was uh in, in the medo persian empire and in, in uh that time period why do you have a fascination right now with that time period well oh, is, is that xerxes question. the same xerxes in the movie 300 it is uh the uh the uh, the the one and the same from the book of esther mm. so my uh fascination with that uh time i guess this might predate that time a little bit okay when i was a soldier in iraq i had the mm -hmm. opportunity to go to ur of the Chaldees, oh, cool. which of course dates way back to Abraham. Right. But a lot of uh, reconstruction was done during the Neo-Babylonian Empire, mm -hmm. um, which was right before the, the Medo-Persian Empire. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where my, my fascination with okay. that sort of block of history began. Mm -hmm. Then uh, recently I was uh, approached with the offer to perhaps contribute to a commentary series. Mm -hmm. uh, that Aerial Ministries is doing, which That's I've wonderful. got a lot of respect for Aerial Ministries and Arnold Fruchtenbaum and everything. So yeah. I said, yes, I would love to participate. Thanks for thanks for uh, inviting me along. <laughs> and uh, they said, okay, we'll send you a list of books that are uh, that are available that people aren't writing on yet. And I saw Ezra on the list. I said, ah, I want to do that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said, okay, okay. You know, uh, write the introduction in the uh, first chapter and send it in, and we'll take a look and see if we like it or not. And, mm -hmm. So doing that, of course, doing the an introductory chapter to a uh, to a commentary, you got to get into a lot of the background, and yeah. so that's what I, I started uh, re, re, uh, revisiting a lot of the Babylonian as well as the um, Medo-Persian period. Okay, because to get the to the background of, I mean, the the Book of Ezra begins with a decree by uh, Cyrus, mm -hmm. the first uh, Medo-Persian empire guy which uh he's releasing the jews from the neo-babylonian empire so all of the background there has kind of uh come back to the forefront of my attention and as you go through ezra you get into these different kings and uh, mm -hmm. different figures so there's a lot of uh discussion to be brought in from the archaeological record yeah. as well as other uh topics as well i like bringing in uh yeah. rabbinic literature which is yeah. uh always interesting to look at rabbinic literature has been so dedicated to driving people away from Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's, that's unfortunate. And uh, one way they do that is by trying to revise a timeline because in the book mm -hmm. of Daniel, 
it tells us precisely when the Messiah is coming. Yeah, it does. Uh, and you can align that perfectly with the uh, decree by Artaxerxes to rebuild uh, the wall in Jerusalem. And if Talk you follow about- that, perfect. Mm-hmm. If you fo- if you want to break it like uh, Rashi and uh, the the rabbis did, yeah. Then in the centuries when they wrote, they were able to lead people astray and say, "Look, this Yeshua did not come sixty nine weeks after the uh, uh, decree, the timeline like the like the Christians say it is, because mm-hmm. you know." They they made like two hundred years disappear. Now we've got all sorts of archaeology and stuff disproving the rabbis to prove the Jesus timeline. Oh, it's right. it's just great. I love it all, man. It's it's wild and, and stuff like that's found in the Talmud, right? Uh, oh, yes, some of you it. Can trace I, that I, in I, I the. Uh, so the I think it's oh goodness, it's Midrash Olam. Oh, I could probably look it up for you. But uh, I saw a post you had made. Yeah, uh, she's a big one. Talking about. Well, at least in one of the Talmuds, because I know the two big ones are the Babylonian and the Jerusalem Talmud. But uh, was there a discussion as far as the frogs of the plagues and that there was an argument whether it was a bunch of little frogs or one giant frog during the plagues in Egypt? Is that what they were arguing? That's uh, that's one of so the, the Talmud is full of arguments, right? Um, arguments between rabbis which is always interesting to, to to look at people present their case and everything and uh sometimes it's really really unfortunate the directions that, that they go on especially whenever it gets messianic and they do yeah. everything to, to twist the word of god to get away from jesus mm-hmm. sometimes it's funny though the uh so in the egyptian plagues we have the plague of the frogs and the first time that the word frog occurs the frog comes out and it's in the singular from mm-hmm. there it starts being spoken of in the the plural so mm-hmm. i believe it was uh rabbi akiva who said you see there it was one frog that came as a terror to egypt and uh the other rabbis just completely disagreed now uh, i agree with the other rabbis that the the first use of the frog is like the uh the, the class the frog came you can speak okay. about one okay yeah class in the singular uh, and then we see the frogs plural after that. I don't want that to be true, though. I want it to be true that there was one giant Godzilla-looking frog <laughs> yeah. coming out there and terrorizing these <laughs> oppressors of Israel. That's what I want to be true. Yeah, But we can't allow what we want to be true to dictate our Bible interpretation. Why I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> within the the Hebrew that it's the class of frogs in the first one. So as disappointed as it is that it doesn't work out the way I want it to, I still have oh, to submit man. to the word of God and hold to a plurality of frogs. It's Dude, I, I got to find that illustration you shared and put it on this video because it was just awesome. <laughs> Understand anybody watching the Talmud is not inspired. The Talmud no, is essentially no. more or less like a commentary on the oral law with some other things on it and made up of the Mishnah and the Gemara and the Gemara is really the rabbinical commentaries of it. The Talmud makes up the whole. But uh, yeah, I saw that from you as like, oh, that's that's so I want it to be one giant frog, man. But I don't know if I can. It would be but- fun to think about, right? <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't get into scripture. So I want to get into Daniel chapter five. I love the book of Daniel. Okay. Uh, Not only because my name is Daniel, but also because the book of Daniel is just 
not only is it prophetic, but from an archaeological perspective, there's just so much richness in it. And yes. one of the controversies, controversies in the book of Daniel uh, stems from chapter 5, verse number 1, where it says, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before uh, the thousand. So here we're told that Belsh Belshazzar was a king of Babylon. However, comma, uh, whenever people look up, critics specifically look up the list of kings in Babylon, Belshazzar is not even once mentioned. And so uh, the Bible says that he was a king of Babylon, but the list of Babylonian kings that are supposedly found does not list him as a king. Did the book of Daniel make a mistake or was Belshazzar a king? What's the deal? The Bible critics made the mistake. <laughs> okay. This so? is my favorite one. This is my favorite example yeah. of Bible critics uh, just absolutely making something up and and being disproven. Mm. All right. I I gotta I gotta pull up some slides on this one here. Excellent. Um Let's see. Uh, are you able to see that? No, I haven't shared my nope, screen. You got to share. Now, this ties there back to what's known as the Maccabean theory. And the Maccabean theory is the fact that people will argue that the book of Daniel was written during the Maccabean period of the first, second century BC. And the reason why is because it's so much historically, it, there's so much historically accurate information in it that they claim Daniel could not have written it in the 6th century BC. And therefore, they theorize or really hypothesize that it was written during the Maccabean time. So it's been given the title of the Maccabean theory as far as when Daniel was written. Well, there are some things in the book of Daniel that really point to a 6th century authorship. And uh, this is probably one of them. So here you got a picture of Belshazzar handwriting on the wall, Manel, Manel, uh, Tico, Farson. And uh, uh, yes. so why are you bringing this up? Uh, Daniel is very inconvenient for the critics. <laughs> <laughs> I like that word inconvenient. <laughs> so Belshazzar for, uh, for the listeners who aren't up to date on uh, who that is, he's the figure that was the king at the very end of the Neo-Babylonian empire. Mm -hmm. And he brought out the instruments from the, uh, from the temple and was having a big old feast being debaucherous. Then the hand shows up, writes on the wall. That's why we have the idiom to this day, that writing is on the wall. Right. And said, that's it, Belshazzar, you're done for. And then he dies that night, and uh, Darius the Mede uh, takes over, mm -hmm. which is a whole other topic in and of itself. I got a buddy that wrote a dissertation on Darius the Mede. Oh, cool. Okay, so what are the accusations? Here we have um, a... Commentary written by Kaiser von Lingerke. Das Buch Daniel. That was das Buch Daniel. Das Buch. <laughs> you speak German? Uh, Are you of uh, German heritage? Die Kasse ist weiß und schwarz. Okay. I just said the cat is white and black. That's all I know in That's German. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> That's I it. studied That's Russian, it. so I don't really... Uh... It's fun. I can kind of pick out uh, cognates with English every now and then. But, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I know how to say bitter and Danka, Danka Zane and, and Avita Zane and all the other Zanes out there, but and Zane Hodges. And, but anyways, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
So in the 1800s, uh, especially in Germany, it had become really popular to attack the the word of God. Mm-hmm. And this is one criticism that one author was making. Uh, speaking of the event we just saw with Belshazzar, but the hand in the writing, there is no historical basis, whatever, on which such an account can rest. The whole must be pure fiction. The whole thing is a palpable forgery, got up merely to magnify Daniel. But how could the writing be explained? Daniel be promoted and proclaimed as third in the government? That'll be significant. We'll look at that in a bit, right? So at the very end, um, the writing's on the wall. Belshazzar says, who can explain this? Daniel comes in, explains it, and Belshazzar makes him the third in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Belshazzar being king, he can do that, right? Yep. And the city being taken besides all in one night? Improbable altogether, if not impossible. The name Belshazzar is a mistaken one. The name of the last king was Nabonid, um, <laughs> which you can uh, read about Nabonidus. Nabonidus, in, yeah. Uh, in the uh, in Herodotus's writings, he is an mm. ancient Greek historian who doesn't talk about Belshazzar. So he says, last king was Nabonid, not Belshazzar. The writer has given us a mere figment instead of a real name. The whole story is disfigured and falsified by the author, who is neither an eyewitness of the occurrences nor accurately acquainted with the history of them. Why? Because it was written much, much later, probably the Maccabean period. You silly dispensationalist, you, how dare you believe As opposed to the fact that this guy wrote this book at least 2,000 years later. Yeah, so he's got a much better position to uh, to comment on this, right? <laughs> exactly. Apparently, there there's there's always a degree of pride. It's it's sad whenever I look at Bible critics, um, they'll often suppose that they are smarter than or somehow or above the authors that wrote back then. Yeah. Um. If I'm ever in conflict with a biblical author about what he wrote, the biblical author is right and I'm wrong. That's just the way it is. You know? yeah. Yeah. That's not the way that folks like this think, though. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> Belshazzar is the king, um, the, the last king, according to von Lengerke, was Nabonid. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's see here. So then they found the Nabonidus cylinder from Ur. That's a picture of the cylinder. That's a picture of Ur. Look at you. uh, Is that you? Yeah, that's me right there holding a cool machine gun. Uh, Nice. My buddy. Yeah. Right there. We're going to be. We're going to be taken down by YouTube now and Facebook because there's a picture of a AR, which stands for Armalite rifle, not an assault rifle. (laughs) But (laughs) look at you. You got your DCUs on. Nice. Yeah. That was back in 2005, back when uh, that was the style, right? Thank you for your service. Now you need to get your grumpy old vet shirt like I do. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, thank you for your service. Uh, I have a grumpy veteran hat that I wear. There uh, we go. I have a good uh, grumpy grumpy shirt. <laughs> so here you are, at, or you got the Nabonidus uh, uh, yes. uh, cylinder. Um. So what does this cylinder say? Mm. All right. It mentions Belshazzar by name, right? Uh, the thought was that there was no Belshazzar, 
Mm-hmm. The name doesn't occur in Herodotus. Mm. Then we see in this text, it mentions Belshazzar, my oldest son, my offspring. This is Nabonidus writing, right? Mm. So Nabonidus, king of Babylon, save me from sinning against your great godhead and grant me a present life long days. As for Belshazzar, the, my, the eldest son, my offspring, and still reverence for your great godhead, blah, 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 blah. May he mm-hmm. not make any cultic mistake, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Nabonidus, by the way, had this big fascination with the false god Sin, who is the um, god that that uh, ziggurat over here is dedicated to. Mm-hmm. So he was big into reconstructing that. Mm-hmm. This front part was reconstructed by Saddam Hussein, but the, the yeah. back there is uh, Nabonidus stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. So – the German critic, this was discovered in 1854. He wrote in 1835, within decades, he was disproven. Indeed, Belshazzar exists. Okay, so now the critics have to revise the criticism of Daniel. So we have Frederick William Farrar, a uh, Anglican priest, theologically liberal. By the way, he was one of the pallbearers at Charles Darwin's funeral. Mm. So that kind of tells you something about this guy, right? Yeah. So he says, okay, okay, okay. There was a Belshazzar. Uh, Belshazzar Utsar. Bel protect the prince. And we possess a clay cylinder of his father Nabunaid, the last king of Babylon, praying to the moon god. But if we follow Herodotus, this Belshazzar never came to the throne. There was no king Belshazzar. Hmm. So the Bible's still wrong. Okay, okay, there was a Belshazzar. He wasn't king, though, right? Okay, uh, that's nice, if it was true. <laughs> he wrote that in 1895. Hmm. It happens that a few years earlier in 1880, so what, 15 years earlier, this text had been discovered, but it wasn't translated until the 20th century, right? So uh, Farrar was ignorant of this. So this is the verse account of Nabonidus, um, propaganda piece that was put out in the, the days of Cyrus. So talking about Nabonidus, he entrusted the army to his oldest son, his firstborn, the troops in the country he ordered under his command. He let everything go and trusted the kingship to him. Now... Who is Nabonidus's firstborn son? Mm-hmm. Belshazzar. Belshazzar. We saw I it in this text, that. right? Mm-hmm. So we know that Nabonidus, right, top king, mm-hmm. according to Herodotus, right, has a son, Belshazzar, who he has entrusted the kingship to. Mm-hmm. What does that make Belshazzar? Yep, that makes him king. the second in command. Yep. Right, mm-hmm. and yeah. through other texts, you can trace that then Nabonidus runs off to another town and leaves Belshazzar in charge. Well, now yeah, Belshazzar is second king, right? Crown prince, second in command. Yeah. What role does he give to David? Makes him the third in the yep. kingdom. Why the third? Because he's only the second, right? <laughs> yep. So that's a detail that 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 it was the third position. Mm-hmm. Not the second, not the first, because he wasn't in the position to give the second. He was the second. Right. And it's a detail that the um, that the Bible has had this whole entire time. You could dig around in the dirt and find it, and eventually we did. But the critics who were trying to say that Belshazzar never existed or that, okay, he existed, but he wasn't king. Yeah. 
they were wrong. The Bible went an extra step further and showed that, yeah, he was in a position to give away the third place. Yep. It, it goes back to the original discussion at the beginning of the interview and the fact that people want to use this argument from science. You know, if there's nothing found, then it proves it never existed. Well, that's not how it works, you know, and, and by all. doing that, we have to claim omniscience and omnipresence, which we can do neither. And so the fact that this was discovered well after the fact uh, refutes that idea, refutes, you know, this aspect of Nabonidus and, and Belshazzar and, and everything else. I love how you drew it out because, yeah, like Nebuchadnezzar, he gave Daniel the second place. Why didn't Belshazzar? Well, because like you said, he couldn't give away second because he was number two. And uh, he was a co-regent because I think it was Nabonidus. He ended up going to Tima, Arabia to establish that religion out there uh, from what the verse account said also. And yeah, like you said, he he gave it uh, the authority of that area to his son. And, and the thing about yep. Daniel is fascinating me because some of the things that Daniel writes about, because even like in Belshazzar's account in chapter five, it talks about it, he wrote on the plaster of the wall. Only somebody familiar with the inner workings of the room itself knew how the room was constructed. And when it was destroyed, it wasn't known until after it was discovered what the room was actually like. And so there's so many facts and details that yep. reveal that Daniel had to have been living in those days to write about those things only somebody living in those days knew about. And so that's one reason why I just love the book of Daniel. And so it seems like you do, too. And Belshazzar, being, you said being one of your favorite favorite references is that accurate you said it is uh the the belshazzar controversy is my favorite one of of all of them just because it just because it was so disproven they were so wrong and the the, the tablets necessary to prove it had been discovered yeah they were just uh they were i'm sorry they were stupid they were trying to disprove the bible and that's 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 the wrong thing to do you know. Yep, and, and like scripture says, uh, let every man be found, you know, let God be true and every man be a liar. And so yep. when you go out to discredit it, <laughs> you're going to be proven one way or the other wrong. So moving on from that. So what are your top five? Not not Belshazzar and the verse account and the Nabonidus Chronicle and Nabonidus Cylinder and stuff like that. What would you say are the top five most powerful discoveries within archaeology that you're aware of? that supports, corroborates, or approves the biblical narrative. If you had to list five, what would they be briefly and why? That's a, that's a tough question right there. <laughs> Everybody's going to have a different top five. Yeah. Uh, all right. Top one, in my opinion, is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm, okay. Discovered in, uh, what, 1946? Yeah. And they are uh, very exhaustive texts from the uh, the Hebrew Old Testament that prove that the Old Testament had been preserved all the way up through the uh, oldest copies that we had at the time, which mm -hmm. were centuries younger than these. Mm -hmm. So that is good for supporting the textual tradition, the faithfulness that the Jews had to the Old Testament. Number yeah, two. Yeah, it definitely supports the fact that what we have today is not much different from what they had then. And so that's fascinating. It really isn't. Uh, you look at, I think, Isaiah 53, and there's one single letter that's different. And it's, I think, the letter Wow, which, you know, is um, 
one that can often you have a word that can be spelt either with a point or with a mm -hmm. vowel that has the point or, or a consonant with the point. It's the same word either way, kind of like oh. uh, the word color in English can be spelt with or without a U, depending if you're right. or not. So, so what uh, is this? This is the Ketephinum scrolls, the, the silver scrolls. These were discovered um, fairly recently as well in the uh, 70s, I think. That can't oh. be right. I've in the later uh, 20th century, right? Okay. So these are uh, little silver scrolls, and uh, they discovered them. They're about the size of uh, cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And they went through the difficult work of unrolling them and revealed this, a uh, priestly blessing from um, the Mosaic text, right? Uh, mm. Leviticus numbers, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. So these are copies of the Old Testament or fragments of the Old Testament, which are older than the Old Testament. <laughs> these were written before Malachi sat wow. down yeah. and pinned his portion. Right. Uh, now, these aren't portions of Malachi, obviously. They're portions from Moses. Um, and they reflect very accurately the text that we have from the, uh, the Torah. Yeah. No. You know, one of the things critics try to point out is why can't we find documents that are contemporary to uh, what the biblical authors wrote in? And the other thing they got to realize is the fact that most of these times they were written in, in uh, not necessarily animal skins, though that came later, but they were written on fibrous like plant material, too, that yep. broke down and decayed and, and did not survive. So the fact that we could find anything that's old is fascinating in and of itself. The reason that we have uh, papyrus mm -hmm. uh, documents, so papyrus is an Egyptian plant, is because they were stored in Egypt, which is ridiculously dry. <laughs> <laughs> if you go to other parts of the world where you have a lot of wetness and dampness, things deteriorate a lot more quickly. Yep. This was written on silver, so it's able to uh, survive a little bit longer. Yeah, We have a lot of clay, clay tablets that are able to survive all sorts of uh, weather. Yeah. So. The Tell Dan Steel. That is another good, strong name, Dan. I like that. Yeah. Uh, from the city of, of Dan. Um, this one has David's name written on it. Actually, it says the House of David. Um, this came up in 1993. People were trying to doubt that King David existed, which is an absurd thing to doubt, but okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so finally, we have an object with his name that pops up. Uh, talking about his house. Uh, so that's a big one. Mm -hmm. And here's another one. Uh, this yep. is number four on my list. Crucified man at Givat Hamivdar. People have tried to say that crucifixion wasn't a thing. Um, now think about what it would take to have a... Uh, a uh, remnant of a, a crucifixion. Obviously, we have all sorts of texts that talk about crucifixion, the mm -hmm. Bible being uh, the most significant of them. Yeah. But since that's the one that people are trying to attack, why don't we have any crucifixion anywhere? Well, because people uh, that were crucified were the most uh, despicable, despised mm. uh, thugs out there. They were nailed to wood and then cast aside, right? Mm -hmm. 
So we wouldn't ex- expect a lot of crucifixion remnants left. Right. But then this came up, which is a, uh, it's like an ankle bone that's got a nail driven through it. You can see this little hook on the end of it. That yeah. must have hurt as they were driving through it, kind of got hung up. So this is uh, this is evidence of an actual crucifixion. Wow. Uh, we don't know whose foot it is. We know it's not Jesus's foot because right. his foot got resurrected. So <laughs> That's true. Yep, definitely. Gives evidence to the fact of crucifixions and now now this one tell dan Steele that proves a big character i like this one this is the seal of nathan melech who is mentioned in second samuel 23 11 mm. uh, and he took away the horses that the kings of judah had given the son in the entrance of the house of jehovah by the chamber of nathan melech in the chamberlain who was the precinct and he burned chariots of the sun with fire a little name that's thrown out there he was a, a an important servant of, of the king but he's not like a huge ruler of legions right. he's not someone that you would have known about if if you were making up this story several years later but they found his seal so that is the seal that's got his name right there on it so archaeology is not only proving the big guys like uh david it's also proving the little guys like nathan malek as well as a lot of guys in the middle, like Belshazzar. Right. No, that's really good in- insight there, too, as far as the little guys, if you will. So those I love the your... little guys because those are the ones that you're going to get wrong, right? If you're making mm-hmm. up a story, you're going to know about the big guys like David. You know, If mm-hmm. I was to write fan fiction about Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. I could guess Julius Caesar. I could probably get on Wikipedia and find some of his big cronies, but I wouldn't be right. able to tell you you know, who his servant was. Right. So So if you could find evidence, you know, find artifacts of the servant, then that would maybe, you know, validate your research, you know, and your studies and accuracy. So awesome. Now, one of the things that I like too is the reference that earlier is the Pontius Pilate stone, uh, but then other stuff like not necessarily digging up in the ground, but finding in the waters, you know, what's known as underwater thermal vents, which was found, I think, in the first time in the 70s at the Galapagos Island, which reveals the fact that, yes, there are vents on the oceanic crust that spew out uh, uh, hot air, hot water, whatever the case is. And it gives credence and authority to Job when it's talking about the springs under the water. And so things like it's just fascinating to me. But oh, yeah. All so right, far, so- we stuck to like uh, human stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You start talking about the flood. That's another. That's another uh, archaeological thing uh, in and of itself. It's it's geological, right? Yeah, that's an occasion where God did something to the earth, and He's left all sorts of evidence behind, <laughs> right? All these rock layers that were put out there, mm-hmm. um, bones being stuck in the different layers. Uh, so, yeah. biblical archaeology isn't restricted to what man has done. It's mm-hmm. it's it's a beautiful thing. Definitely. Well, well, you brought it up. So let me ask you, Noah's Ark. Is that in <laughs> Turkey? Uh, I don't believe it is. Why? So the, Everybody else says it is. <laughs> um, Actually, so there have been uh, five proposals, five okay. spots where people have said that they think that they found the, uh, the Ark. I don't believe in any of them, of mm-hmm. these five. Three of them are on, on Mount Ararat, the mountain. Okay. 
Um, now the Bible says that the ark landed in the mountains of Ararat, so that's a mountain range. Right. Um, after the fact, someone named a particular mountain Mount Ararat, so people are looking all over that one. Right. Another one's in Iran. Whenever you really look at look at these things, the uh, they typically um, are rock formations that can occur mm. in uh, natural uh, natural ways. Now, obviously, you and I, we are friends of the ark, right? We believe that the <laughs> yes. uh, the biblical account of a global flood mm-hmm. and the preservation of mankind on a single ship is is legitimate. That's that's actually mm-hmm. what happened. Is it possible that we have lost the ark, though? I, I think that it's more likely that we have entirely lost the ark than that we are ever going to find it. Mm-hmm. So think about what we got going on. So we've got this global flood, uh, mm-hmm. the fountains of the deep opening up. There's probably a lot of volcanic activity and earthquakes. Mountains are forming. Mm-hmm. Then the ark comes to rest in this mountain range. Okay. Now... Um, man needs to go out and fill the earth. It's a new disastrous place. Mm, <laughs> you yeah. just imagine it's been covered in water now. Right. Uh, Noah's finally able to get out safely. And he has this beautiful ship with already pre-cut hewn wood, uh, gopher wood, which is often uh, the, the Hebrew word is gopher. People often leave gopher in there just because we don't really know what it means. It could right. be a type of wood or it could be like a like a wood that's been treated and, and used. Mm-hmm. So the ark itself would have been a valuable resource because it's got prepared wood, uh, probably nails or um, mm-hmm. dowels throughout as well, right? So it very well could be that they would have started deconstructing this boat in order to use it for constructing mm-hmm. other projects. Even if they just completely left it there and took off, we still have a lot of earthquakes and volcanic activity that would very likely destroy this thing. Mm-hmm. You can't just leave a big piece of wood out in the, the open like that and not have <laughs> uh, serious problems with it. Right. So uh, if I was to guess, I'd say that the Ark has probably been destroyed. Um, there have been some uh, very zealous... Uh, biblicists, people that believe the Bible, and I, mm-hmm. I really appreciate that about them, but um, sometimes they try to twist things up to uh, to uh, to make it appear as if mm-hmm. they have found the Ark. If you do find the Ark, Noah's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, if you mm-hmm. find, uh, what is it, the Holy Grail that caught the, the blood, right. or, which by the, the way cup. is fiction, yeah. that's, that's not a thing, right? <laughs> Then you can make a lot of money, right? There, there's always a lot of. Uh, I'm always suspicious whenever you find mm-hmm. something that's really good for biblical archaeology, just because there's a lot of fraudulence out there. It's something that we have to uh, accept. We have to be willing to to recognize that that artifact that we want them mm-hmm. to find might not be available available in our lifetime. It's like the legend and of the spear okay. of destiny. Have you ever heard of the spear of destiny? What's the spear of destiny? So spear of destiny, I believe, is what it's called. It is is hyped up to be the spear that actually pierced the side of Christ, and that supposedly okay. whoever controls it and owns it, uh, they have this power, and they believe that Hitler had the spear of destiny during his Third Reich uh, development. And so that's another one where it's like lost to legend, like the Holy Grail and the Knights Templar and stuff like that. But uh, that's very difficult to believe. 
So, but what were you going to say before I cut you off? Um, why, why the Turkey oh. area? Yeah. Yes. Turkey. So specifically the, of the five places that have been proposed, um, the one in Turkey was proposed by an, a, a, um, a fake biblical archeologist that I, I want to put mm. out a warning about. Okay. Uh, Ron Wyatt. Did I get that name right? I've got a quote by him here. So Ron Wyatt has um, told people that he has found the Ark of the Covenant. Not that he like found it digging around in the dirt, but that he was walking along and God spoke to him and said, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is behind that rock over there. And he looked and lo and behold, the Ark of the Covenant with blood on top of the mercy seat. And he says that he took a sample of the blood and did a test on the blood. And by the way, he won't show this Ark of the Covenant to anyone, which is suspicious. Uh, but he did a mm -hmm. test on the uh, the blood and he took a blood sample that only had 24 chromosomes instead of 46 chromosomes. Uh, so this is these are his words. He says, all of us have 46 chromosomes. Unless we have Down syndrome, uh, which would mean that you would have 20, uh, 45. Mm. So if you lose one chromosome, you end up with uh, Down syndrome. Okay. If you lose more, you're dead. Okay. You can't be born with uh, too few chromosomes. Mm -hmm. Now, he took a test of this blood sample and said that uh, it has 24 chromosomes. So he says Christ had 24 chromosomes. Each parent supplies 23 chromosomes to a new infant. So Christ got 23 from his mother. He got one from his father, God the Father, which was a Y, which made him a male. He got it not from an earthly father, or else he would have had 46 like the rest of us. Okay, so what are the implications here? First of all, that Jesus only had 23. Did I get that right? 24. Mm-hmm. Right? So you get 23 from your mother, 23 from your father. He didn't have an earthly father, but he was a male, which is from the father line. So God the Father gave him the 24th. Okay. This is a denial of the full humanity of Christ. Mm -hmm. Not only is it fake archaeology, a flat-out lie. He did not find the Ark of the Covenant. But now he is lying and saying that Christ was not fully human. That is heresy. To deny the humanity of Christ is to deny uh, his personhood and also mm -hmm. to deny his ability to die on the cross, right? You cannot live if you have that few chromosomes. So mm -hmm. Christ would have been a a phantom, if you will. Mm. Only God, not man. Uh, docetism okay. would be the ancient heresy affiliated with, with uh, that whole line of thought. So the Christ of Ron Wyatt is incapable of dying for your sins. So, mm. yeah, blatant heresy that he's using fake archaeology to support. That's not to say that he's always wrong about everything. Mm -hmm. But whenever he makes another fantastic claim, like I found the Ark of Noah, I think, yeah, I heard what you said about the Ark of the Covenant, mm -hmm. too. So <laughs> be careful of the guy saying he found it in Turkey be careful of Ron Wyatt. Uh, I don't like calling out 
Bible teachers by yeah. name too often. But if you're teaching that kind of thing, you need to be you need, you need to be named. Yeah. So, all right. With that, with that being the case, and you brought up the Ark of the Covenant, it it, it fascinates me where supposedly for centuries it was just sitting behind a rock and nobody else found it but he did through special revelation that he believes god has told him then he tested the blood so you brought up the aspect of the ark of the covenant i think it's the coptics out there in ethiopia that argue they have the ark of the covenant ron wyatt claims that he found it in turkey uh where is this ark of the covenant where are we ever going to find it? What are your thoughts? That's a good question. So, so Noah's Ark, I don't think exists anymore. I think it's been destroyed, right? That makes sense because if it was able to weather all that rain and all that water, it's probably very, it's probably the best pressure treated wood that money can buy. And so that would have been valuable yeah. resource. Plus if they had to build an altar afterwards anyway, they had to construct it some way. They had to have some sort of kindling. So, I mean, that makes sense, but Ark yeah. of the Covenant was overlaid in gold. Where is that? Ark of the Covenant. Um, it could be that the Ark of the Covenant still exists out there. Okay. Uh, it could be that it's been destroyed. Um, mm. It could have been dismantled and repurposed. I mean, it's got a lot of gold. It's it's a, it's a valuable item. Um, if, let's see. So the Ark of the Covenant, we see throughout the biblical narrative that people touch it in an inappropriate way, and then they are killed on the spot. Mm-hmm. Um so it seems that that could be a particular ministry of the Holy Spirit, which was going on okay. uh, in the prior dispensation. There could be a new dispensational aspect where the Holy Spirit is not actively executing people that mishandle the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so it could be that uh, a couple of robbers came along and said, oh, hey, let's take these uh, gold pieces and melt them down. Right. right. That's one possibility. Um, the don't, don't we know like the Philistines had taken it and put it in front of Dagon and Dagon kept falling yep. over. And so, but yeah, which is fascinating. Right. So the Holy Spirit allowed the uh, Philistines to do that. He didn't execute them on the spot. Yeah. And it seems that he was doing it for his own glory. Right. Yeah. Right? yeah. He's and like, okay, kept instead, over. Of, uh, <laughs> instead of frying these guys, I'm going to take down your, your idol instead. Yeah. Which is beautiful. So this is this is something that frustrates me, going off on a tangent. All right? Whenever I uh, look at archaeologists and what they're doing, you know, um, I'm always concerned whenever somebody has an inappropriate relationship with the gods of antiquity. Okay. Uh, you know, you, you see it in Egyptology, for example. Uh, people become Egyptologists because they're fascinated with ancient Egypt and they've got all those pictures and everything on the walls. They say, Oh, isn't it beautiful? Oh, wow. Look at all this, you know, this picture of uh, Osiris and all this. No, that's not beautiful. It isn't. It's despicable. It's disgusting. The uh, ancient uh, Egyptians, humans that thought this up were disgusting perverts that came up with the most despicable sexually perverse creation myths to justify their lavish out, outrageous disgusting behavior no whenever we whenever we deal with archaeology and we see the gods of antiquity we should have a righteous 
disgust within us looking at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whenever I, I see someone that, that kind of thinks, oh, wow, you know, the Egyptian gods are kind of cool. I'm like, get your heart right. You know, you no. need to realize that uh, these have prevented people from believing in the one true God. Yep. Uh, anyhow. Definitely. That's another tangent. So whenever I read the Bible yeah. and I see the Ark of the Covenant knocking over a false god, I'm like, yeah. yes. Whenever I see Elijah mocking the false gods of Baal, I'm like, that's the posture to have when you're doing yeah. archaeology. That's not... Uh, not a lot of secularists will agree with me there. No, yeah. Anyhow, so the uh, the group in uh, Ethiopia there mm-hmm. – I've heard it said that while they are protecting this uh, little room where they say the Ark of the Covenant is... That's just covered under a table with a tablecloth or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Apparently, there have been some people that have indeed gone in there to see this thing and have come out and said, no, that's that's not legitimate. Yeah. I don't know if they're apostate priests or what. So Uh um, there are a couple of possible locations, but... uh, Maybe it's out there in Assyria somewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, the only thing I can think of is in the book of Revelation, there is a reference to the Ark of the Testimony. And when you look at the testimony, it's actually in the Greek, the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, yep. and so it could be a fact that it's it's been taken up and it's currently in, in heaven at this moment. And when Jesus died... That's a cool thought. And ascended up into the heavens. Uh, he places blood on the mercy seat, according to the book of Hebrews. And it could have been that aspect, although, you know, that could have just been a symbolic or a heavenly representation of the mercy seat. So it could be that. But in the end, like like what you opened up with, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, you, you yep. know. And, and so it doesn't just because the ark has yet to been found doesn't mean it's never been in existence. And so you know that's biggest premise uh to say and so a lot of people will say you know as far as you know trying to disprove the existence of god from an apologetic standpoint you can't honestly you cannot disprove the existence of anything uh humanly speaking because you have to claim omniscience saying that you know everything and omnipresence meaning that you are everywhere at the same time uh in the same way i cannot disprove the existence of a flying teapot or orbiting our planet. I can't disprove that Muhammad did not fly up to heaven on a winged horse. What I can do is give logical reasons why that is not plausible or possible. But to say you can disprove God's existence or to say you can disprove this event history in history never, you know, ever happened uh, specifically on the basis of not finding anything is complete fallacy. It's complete fa- fallacious yep. argument, and it will never hold up to scrutiny really within the scientific world if you're being honest with the scientific method, which people are no longer believe in the scientific method anyways. But that's my little tangent for now. But Ark of the Covenant <laughs> is possible. It could be up in heaven, you know, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because what would happen if it was found, it would be worshipped by people. And it would just be people worshiping, committing idolatry, and worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And so, to me, it doesn't matter. We'll find out one day. But, you know, maybe it's up in heaven. Who knows? But, so, excellent. So, that was the last thing I wanted to ask you as far as archaeology is concerned. So, as we wrap this thing up, are there any final thoughts, words, anything you want to let everybody know before we say goodbye? 
The Bible is sufficient. <laughs> it's very easy to allow archaeology and other really interesting and fun things. Uh, it's very easy to allow that to get you sidetracked. Mm -hmm. Don't don't go down that rabbit hole, right? Mm -hmm. uh, by all means, be familiar with what's going on in the world of archaeology. But uh, if you're finding that your uh, archaeology is detracting you from the actual word of God, then uh, you, you've probably made a, a, a misstep somewhere along the way. So. Yeah, definitely. Like, like you said, if scripture says something contrary to what I believe, then I'm wrong and not scripture. Yep. And absolutely. We're going to definitely find all that out, you know, one day uh, when everything's made perfect. So again, Dr. Paul Miles, I appreciate you being here. Uh, look forward to Thanks for the opportunity, uh, the book on Ezra, the commentary that you're working on, I believe it is, but there you'll be in prayer for that, be in prayer for your family and just everything going on in Kiev, as well as the entirety of Ukraine. And uh, we'll have links in the descriptions below for everything that uh, uh, we referenced as far as like his ministry, stuff like that. And so check it out Thursday show, check out the other ministries he talked about, like Grace Abroad. And uh, until next time, God bless.